Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge. What you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Or should I say, harrowed old nut made a great circle, 635. That was cryptic even for you, Matt. Exactly. (laughs) What? I'll tell you at the end. I can't wait. But today, Dr Catherine Kemp from the University of New South Wales is here to talk about the misuse of market power provisions and the tensions that can arise between competition and privacy law especially in the digital world. Where there are real privacy advantages and real competition problems at the same time in one scenario, clearly the the privacy and competition regulators need to be coordinating and producing a coherent outcome. But I'd say we shouldn't be mandating that individual consumers give up their privacy against their wishes. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? We've had a couple of court results looking at algorithms and the way that they can affect consumers. You might remember that a few years ago now, the court found that Trivago, the hotel comparison website, had misled customers when it said it would help them find the best deal on a room. In fact, its algorithm for displaying those rooms didn't always rank them just in order of price. It was also based on which hotel booking site would pay them the most for clicks. They appealed that decision, didn't they? They did, and they argued that there wasn't any implication that the first room listed in the results was the cheapest one necessarily, and plus it was easy to see if there were any cheaper ones further down the page, you just had to look. But the court didn't agree with that, and it sent the case back for penalties, which have just come in at $44.7 million. $44.7 million. That sounds like the authorities are unilaterally raising the price of misconduct. It's definitely going up. In the last few years, we've also had a $50 million penalty for Telstra, $125 million for Volkswagen and $153 million for AIPE and its unconscionable diploma courses, which are all higher than the highest ever penalty in competition cases, including cartels. And it's also higher than the $26 million that Uber has just agreed to pay. That's right. Uber has admitted that its algorithm overestimated the cost of a regular taxi booked through the Uber app, which made Uber's own rideshare drivers look like better value than they really were. I didn't know you could book a taxi through the Uber app. You can in a few places, and in Australia you could, but only in Sydney and only until 2020. It was quite handy when Uber had surge pricing, but the taxis, of course, didn't. Yeah, but maybe not quite as handy as you thought. No, it seems not. ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Lieb said it was important for platforms like Uber to really keep an eye on their algorithms and make sure they were always accurate and stayed accurate. Uber also admitted that it had misled customers when it gave them a warning that they might be charged for cancelling a booking, even though it was the actual policy to give you up to five minutes to cancel free of charge. Sounds like they were taking us all for a ride. Didn't we do that last time? Yeah, but it works better this time. And you keep wanting to talk about cars, Matt. Well, it is an ACCC priority, and we're not done yet because our colleagues in the technology and digital team have just written a really interesting update about smart cars and autonomous vehicles and what they can do with all the data they collect and generate all the time. What's the difference between a smart car and an autonomous vehicle? So I think that a smart car is one with some of those driver assistance features that can help you stay in your lane or keep the right distance from the car in front of you. Some of them can even reverse park by themselves. But an autonomous vehicle is one that doesn't need you to drive at all. In fact, it might not even let you drive. It might not have a steering wheel or even a steering yoke like some of the new ones have. So it's smarter than a smart car, is it? Or maybe more bossy? (laughs) That's right. There's actually six official levels of smartness where zero is none at all and five is full automation. Most of the smart cars today are only level two, with a few maybe scraping into level three, where you can give control to the car for some of the time, but you've always got to be ready to drive for yourself if the car needs you to. I think my car's probably a negative on that scale. 
So these systems must be collecting a fair amount of visual data and radar data and data from all over the car to help with their calculations and their decisions. Yeah, and the estimates are going up all the time. At the moment, they're talking about how many terabytes of data it'll be for every hour of driving. How terrifying is your car? And it's hard to visualise that much data too. How many Melbourne cricket grounds of data would that be? It'll be at least a Sydney Harbour full of data, I reckon, maybe more. And most of that data is specifically excluded from the motor vehicle information scheme that we talked about last time. But it's the kind of thing that might be added to the consumer data right in the future. So cabs could be the next cab off the rank after all. Yeah, although it's not on the roadmap at the moment. There is an automated vehicle safety law being developed here, which would give a regulator access to any of this smart car information that might help investigate a crash, say. But that's only a small part of the data. Europe is streets ahead of us, as often happens. The Data Act they've proposed over there would let users get hold of all the data generated by any of the products or things that they use. It's all a bit Night Rider, isn't it? It is. Though in the century we live in now, there's a great sequence in the eighth Fast and Furious film, The Fate of the Furious. Here we go. Where, where Charlize Theron hacks into all the smart cars in the city, makes them crash into each other and plummet from multi-story car parks. And there is always a danger that things can be hacked as they get smarter and more connected, though I'm told it'll be a lot harder than they make it look in the movie. So that was one of the less realistic parts of that series. It was, at least until they sent that Pontiac into space in the last one. Okay, I think it's time to move on. This is driving me up the wall. Well, if we finish with driving, we can move on to drinking. Okay. Next episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into Dawn raids and cartel enforcement. But for now, there have been some raids on three producers of wine, spirits and liqueurs that have just been challenged in the French courts. I bet it was easy to find lawyers wanting to help on those Dawn raids in the Bordeaux wineries. Although it might be a bit early in the morning to be drinking. Maybe not in France. <laughs> but that might explain why the Raiders may have been a bit too enthusiastic. Uh, the companies here were Copagef, which mostly makes table wines, Cofep, which is best known for spirits, and Marie Brassard, which makes liqueurs and syrups for cocktails. Gosh, that sounds like a well-stacked bar. They just needed the company that makes those tiny little umbrellas, Matt. That would be a fun cartel. <laughs> and there were some quite complicated relationships between the three of the companies. Both Cofep and Copagef had interests in Marie Brazard and seats on the board that went back and forth over quite a long time. It was almost like a French bedroom farce over there. Or a boardroom farce. Uh, Trevian. The competition authority was worried they'd been using those board positions to fix prices and keep away from each other's specialties. In Cofep's case, before it eventually got control of Marie Brazard. So there was a bit of gun jumping there as well. It sounds more like Chekhov. It does. So is that when those very civilised raids happened? And what was wrong with them? The companies complained that the authority had seized some documents that were privileged and some that fell outside the scope of the notice that they'd received, which, as we'll hear next time, are the main things you can raise if there's a raid, whether you're in France or here in Australia. So what did the French court say? This made it to the highest court, the Cour de Cassation, who said that the documents were not privileged, but the scope could be an issue. And they sent that back to the lower court to think about. So it was mostly a win for the Autorité de la Concurrence. Santé. At least your French is getting better. Merci. But now, you've spoken to Dr Catherine Kemp from the University of New South Wales, who's written the book on misuse of market power provisions and published widely on competition law and privacy. And those things, Matt, can sometimes find themselves in tension or even in conflict. That's right. They can work together, like where businesses compete on who's got the best privacy protections. But it gets complicated when looking after your customer's privacy can end up locking out your competitors. Let's take a listen. 
Today, I'm talking with Dr. Catherine Kemp, who's a senior lecturer in law at the University of New South Wales. She's the author of Misuse of Market Power, Rationale and Reform, which is out now in all major formats from Cambridge University Press, as well as many papers and articles on that topic, and also on the data and privacy issues that we've been hearing a lot about lately. In fact, Catherine, whenever there's a hot new topic in competition or regulation, you seem to have got there first and written all about it. I guess we'd all like to do a Wayne Gretzky and skate to where the puck is going to be. In my case, I think it's more likely a combination of curiosity and coincidence. There have been a few issues in misuse of market power, digital platforms, and working out how we're going to make privacy, consumer and competition regulation work together In the case of misuse of market power, over a decade ago, I came back to Australia after my time in South Africa, and I'd been working on abuse of dominance cases over there for their commission against South African Airways and British American Tobacco, for example, and writing on them. I came back and I took a good look at our section 46 and thought, you know, hold on, where's the gear stick on this thing? How do you analyze unilateral conduct without analyzing its effect on competition? So I started a PhD on that topic in 2013, and the Harper Review kicked off with its issues paper reconsidering misuse in 2014, and three years later, we had an effects test. So this was a a great time to be writing on misuse of market power, as it turned out. It it was a good time. It isn't often that a section of the competition law makes the news, but I remember Section 46 doing that quite a lot back in the 2010s, if that's what we're calling them. But looking back now, in retrospect, do you think there was a big problem with the old law and do we have the right law now? The biggest problem with the old prohibition was its excessive reliance on the take advantage test, which had been interpreted in numerous, sometimes inconsistent ways. I understand why some people were attached to that test. Some said it's easy to explain to executives for compliance training, act like you'd act if you didn't have market power. The truth is the take advantage test at its best can sometimes be a useful tool for identifying unilateral anti-competitive conduct. But if it's the only test you use, it's going to be under-inclusive. And occasionally the old prohibition could be over-inclusive, but mainly it will miss some cases. And what about the law that we ended up with? Do we think that's the right test now? My short answer is we're largely better off with this effects test, which is actually purpose effect or likely effect test. Most cases under the new section are going to focus on the likely effect of the firm's conduct on competition in a market. Is there a real chance that the conduct would substantially lessen competition? What would the market look like with or without the conduct? Those questions direct our inquiries to the competitive impact of the firm's conduct, and that makes more sense. But it will be harder for firms to raise pro-competitive justifications in some situations, say in a refusal to deal case. If you have a good reason for refusing to deal with someone who's pressing you to supply, you could seek an authorization now. But there are some difficulties for firms with that authorization process. And in the absence of an authorization, there's a risk your refusal could substantially reduce competition in a market, even though you had a plausible competitive explanation. What I found after studying numerous single firm conduct laws around the world was that I came to the conclusion that the way these laws are applied in practice 
what most of them actually are assessing is whether objectively speaking and on balance, the firm's conduct had an anti-competitive purpose. That's how the courts really assess the cases by looking at objective purpose, because we're all trying to explain why it did what it did, objectively speaking. We create those narratives from what we know of markets. So there was a lot of talk about purpose being no good and effect being the way to go, but it sounds like really what we're talking about is a better kind of purpose test, an objective purpose test. I'd hesitate to say that. I believe that is the actual process that courts are going through in assessing this conduct. That doesn't mean that I would propose at this point that we do an overhaul of Section 46 all over again and switch it to an objective purpose test. We've got an approximation of looking at objective purpose to a degree through the likely effect limb. Our purpose limb is admittedly going to focus on subjective purpose if the other case law is anything to go by. And we do have the authorization process. But I think that we need to see how this section 46 plays out before we'd jump in and try and change it over again. So you mentioned the laws in other jurisdictions, the international equivalents. And that was one of the criticisms of the old test, that it was out of step with those, though I guess there is a fair amount of variation internationally and also some changes that are going on at the moment. How do you think we're looking now compared to those other jurisdictions? The amendment has brought us closer to those other laws overseas, but across different countries, we see different kinds of approaches to single firm conduct. Canada really has a test of effects plus purpose, an actual list of anti-competitive purposes. South Africa has a more pure effects test under the Act, but in practice, the tribunal has resorted to considering objective purpose sometimes. The EU guidance on exclusionary abuses puts the focus firmly on anti-competitive effects of the alleged abuses. But there is also a category of abuse by object or essentially by specific purpose as opposed to abuse by effect under EU competition law. Predatory pricing It's given as an example of abuse by object because the view is that the conduct makes no sense other than as a means of protecting the firm's dominance. And then in the US, many courts have applied the balancing test from the Microsoft case, which requires the court to go through a number of steps. And only the very last step is a balancing of anti-competitive effects with pro-competitive justifications. And we've certainly seen an increase in enforcement of the monopolization prohibition under Section 2 of the Sherman Act in the States, particularly a focus on tech and pharmaceutical cases. Up until a a few years ago, they used to say the Department of Justice had brought more cases under the Migratory Birds Act than under Section 2. So unsurprisingly, that's changed with the change in political climate, and there's now more enthusiasm for monopolisation cases. Speaking of, of Europe, as you were, we've been talking a bit on the podcast about competition law in Ukraine. And I see there that the state-owned gas company Naftagaz has gone to the EU to ask them to go after Russia's Gazprom for abuse of dominance. So given the legal situation over there, how do you like their chances? Sadly, I think events have probably overtaken the Naftogaz complaint against Gazprom at this point. Naftogaz was saying Gazprom suddenly reduced its sale of its own gas on the European spot market, even though Naftogaz's demand was growing and Gazprom did have sufficient supply to meet that demand. It also said that Gazprom had stopped selling gas through its own electronic platform with no good reason. 
the idea was that that was for the purpose of creating this artificial shortage of gas and therefore charging excessive prices. So NAFTA Gas wanted the Commission to order Gazprom to release significant volumes of gas for sale. So I guess you'd characterise this as primarily an exploitative abuse, the raising of prices, where Australia usually only relates to exclusionary abuses, where you're stopping a competitor from properly competing. Has that situation changed with the new law here in Australia? It is different in the EU where the law of abusive dominance extends to exploitative abuses. So it's possible to abuse your dominance in the EU by charging excessive prices, for example. In practice in the EU, that kind of claim is fairly rarely brought and rarely succeeds because it's hard to prove excessive pricing. Our section 46 has only been applied to exclusionary abuses rather than exploitative By exclusionary, of course, we mean conduct that excludes or suppresses competition by rivals. One analogy was locking the opposing team in in the locker room. The, The current section 46 does not explicitly say the misuse of market power must have an exclusionary element. It only has to be likely to substantially lessen competition in a market. So a firm could have that effect by say, withdrawing its supply from a market where it was a dominant supplier. It hasn't necessarily stopped anyone else from competing, but it's pulled itself out to use that supply in maybe another market. It's hard to identify any part of the wording of Section 46 that stops something like that from being a misuse of market power. That's interesting. It seems like there was a lot of talk about the substantial lessening competition test being the right test, but I'm not sure that it's perhaps as clearly defined as as we might have assumed. And the ACCC has had some issues with the SLC test, and in particular its comparison of the future with and without the conduct in the merger context, which suggests that it might not be the best test for all situations. You're right. It's not going to be simple. There are going to be the issues with proving, in some cases, the counterfactual and what that world would have looked like without the conduct. And I suspect there are also going to be issues with causation once we start applying this to unilateral conduct, because inevitably there are going to be the arguments about what the story really was. And was this the dominant supplier stamping out competition by its smaller rivals? Or was it simply a firm that is superior in its efficiency and providing exactly what consumers are wanting and the whining would-be rivals are trying to put another spin on it? So you'll always have those competing narratives over causation. So it seems like the story of the misuse of market power prohibition isn't over yet, but at the same time, you're also doing a lot of work on privacy and data issues. How did you get here from there, if you like? About... Eight years ago, I was working on a project on mobile banking in developing countries, and I noticed this strange thing on all these conference presentations. People would have their PowerPoint slides setting out the six areas we need to consider for regulation of mobile banking. And the last bullet point was always privacy or data privacy. And the funny thing was, by the time the speaker got to the last bullet point, they'd always run out of time and they'd just say, and of course, you have to consider data privacy. I started researching what companies were reportedly doing with the personal data of consumers, how they were collecting it, how much, how it was changing hands in the background. Some of them in these developing countries were taking all the data from the consumer's mobile phones, including the content of text messages, tracking how often they contacted their mothers and so on. In Australia, the consumer surveys and privacy terms also paint a very concerning picture. 
The striking thing is that the vast majority of consumers have no clue about the full extent of data a company is collecting about them and what further information about them the company is then obtaining from other third parties and how that's all combined and used to profile and influence them. Many privacy policies and settings appear to be strategically designed so that they can keep consumers in the dark with no real choices. Now, sure, this is a human rights issue, in fact, but it's also a competition issue. How can consumers select the product that outcompetes others to best suit their privacy preferences when the firm's concealed data practices mean you can't tell whether it's enhancing or degrading your privacy? Some say zero-priced online services are paid for with the consumer's data, but that shouldn't mean the company gets a blank check to do whatever it pleases with as much of the consumer's information as it pleases. That data can provide significant competitive advantages. And that's one of the things we see in emerging in new laws and proposals overseas, competition and privacy regulation working together to prevent combinations of data sets across businesses that would unfairly disadvantage both consumers and rivals. So it's quite a complex relationship between competition on the one hand and privacy on the other. And it seems nowadays that there can be a tension between them. Where do they sort of run up against each other? Sometimes I think privacy clearly needs to win out over competition in some of these tensions. Say if you had a medical clinic that has a million patient records and a new medical clinic starts up and says, give us access to those one million patient records so we can start offering them competing services, whether you like it or not, then you would favour the patient's privacy over that potential competition. In other cases, I think privacy is just being used as a pretext, a fiction to justify misuse of market power. That was the finding of the Federal Court of Canada in that Toronto real estate board case. The, the board said it couldn't give rival firms access to sales data for privacy reasons, but it hadn't otherwise treated that data as private. So you're just looking at a pretext. The bigger tension arises where firms or platforms have built up a whole ecosystem where they lock their consumers in and lock their rivals out. Some of Apple's policies and Google's policies, like the privacy sandbox, have been raised as examples of this. There may be genuine and important attempts to compete on the basis of privacy quality that are responding to consumers' needs. We can't deny that. But sometimes firms are essentially saying, we'll keep your data safe in our walled garden. We won't let anyone else near it. We'll just keep this between you and us and our 55 subsidiaries around the world who will use your data for their ever-expanding commercial purposes. Now, that can mean the privacy credentials of the scheme are pretty rubbish at the same time as it's concentrating market power in the hands of a dominant firm with exclusive control over that data. You can certainly imagine that sometimes these issues are raised as pretexts, but what happens when there are real, genuine privacy and competition concerns? I think where there are real privacy advantages and real competition problems at the same time in one scenario, clearly the, the privacy and competition regulators need to be coordinating and producing a coherent outcome. 
But I'd say we shouldn't be mandating that individual consumers give up their privacy against their wishes. If you don't want to have, say, a unique identifier attached to your online activities and shared with a long list of ad tech suppliers, you should be able to protect yourself from that. A human being is not an input. Thanks, Catherine. It's a, it's a really interesting intersection between these two very important areas. And it sounds like that these are questions that will keep us all busy over the next few years, probably longer. Please just tell me that you have another book coming out to help us sort it all out. <laughs> uh, that one would be a fairly long pipeline, but we can't rule it out. Fair enough. Well, it's great to talk to you, Catherine. Thanks very much. Only a pleasure. What a great interview. It was. Uh, Catherine mentioned Apple's app tracking transparency and, and Google's privacy sandbox, which both deal with tracking in different ways. They're pretty popular with users, but not so much with competitors. And that's led to a few complaints and investigations in other jurisdictions. Yeah. In the UK, the CMA required some commitments from Google to preserve competition in advertising services. And Apple is still being investigated by the Polish Office of Competition and Consumer Protection after being cleared by the French Autorité. That's right. And we'll see what happens there. And if you need a refresher on misuse of market power in Australia, that's a bit shorter than Catherine's book. G&T partner Elizabeth Avery and special counsel Liana Witt have just written the local chapter of the new Lexology Getting the Deal Through Dominance 2022. You'd want to watch how you punctuate that though, huh? I mean, if you say getting the deal through dominance, you might get a knock at the door. Yeah, there's definitely a colon or a dash in there in the right place. This is reminding me of the British MP who was searching for a tractor, which was branded Dominator. And he was searching online and apparently accidentally finished up watching pornography on his phone in Parliament. He said he clicked on the wrong link, but he had to resign. Yeah, because he went back and clicked on that link again. He did. He does apparently own a farm as well as a Dominator brand combine harvester. But even so, maybe don't go searching for getting the deal through dominance if you're at work. We'll put a link in the show notes. That's a good call, I think. What's in your crystal ball? Well, the crystal ball is in the shop, actually, and they can't fix it until the new scheme comes in and they can get hold of the schematics. I'm not sure we can wait that long. Well, I do have something that might help with the wait. Um, You remember last time we mentioned that Justice Wigney had described the drafting of the cartel provisions as akin to producing a cryptic crossword? Yes, he actually said they were prolix, convoluted and labyrinthine. He did. And there was a similar comparison in a case in the 80s about a secondary boycott, where the full court said that the quadripartite structure of Section 45D meant that you had to sit down, pen in hand, and work out the various permutations and combinations, rather like a cryptic crossword. I don't think I want to know where this is going, Matt. That's right. I'm happy to announce the Competitive Edge Cryptic Crossword, which is a competition and regulation-themed cryptic crossword you can print out or complete online. I reckon this is a world first, a competition law cryptic crossword. In case you were wondering, yes, Matt is a freak. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone was wondering about that. I'm guessing there's a link in the show notes. There sure is. But if you can't find the show notes, it's also at crossword.info slash edge. So what do you call that then? A competitive dredge? What do you call that? A competitive sledge? (laughs) All right. Well, what if you're a normal person and you don't know how a cryptic crossword works? Well, nobody can explain that better than the Sydney Morning Herald's resident crossword guru, David Assel. So there's a link in the show notes to one of his articles. He's got a book out too, if you want. Do we have any great guests still to come this season? We do, including Tanya MacDonald on Dawn Raids and Cartel Enforcement and Andrew Lowe on the challenges of digital regulation. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Nerds are us.